Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Today we are Art Pop Talking with artist Jen Johnson, a fellow friend and printmaker. We discuss Jen's work that focuses on figurative abstraction and the representation of non-binary bodies, including their own. Yay, let's get into it. Hey girl, hey, are you ready for hot girl summer? Is it officially summer now? It better be, otherwise there's no excuse for this heat. When's the first day of summer, like June 21st or something? Maybe not. I don't know. I feel like not now that I'm not in school anymore. Like, summer's not real. (laughs) Like, it's not a thing because I still have to work like a chump. Well, summer's the best season, and... And I'm I'm very excited. My favorite holiday is is coming up, and <laughs> it's so weird to me that your favorite holiday is the Fourth of July because we are probably the most unpatriotic people you could think of. Truly, and I I don't want anyone to freak out that my favorite Fourth of July or favorite holiday is the Fourth of July. But Gianna, have you seen those TikToks about the Olympics? Glory, <laughs> glory, what a hell of a way to die. <laughs> I just, I feel like the ones that are like, get up, you know, cheer for your country. It's like something about summer, the, like, the Olympics are about to happen. Well, there's a whole problem with, you know, I don't know if the Olympics should be happening or not anyway, but it's just so funny. Like, I am so not Something chemical happens all. when I watch synchronized swimming. Truly, <laughs> truly, when I watch some, like, ladies twirl that ribbon around, I'm just, like, so excited. But something about, like, the chemical mixture of fireworks, hot dogs, barbecue chips, an ice cream cone, and a body of water. Just, those are all the things that I love about this world. And that's, like, the epitome of summer. And summer is my favorite season. It's just the best. And unfortunately, it just so happens that most of the time you get those things on the 4th of July. So while I I won't be celebrating in the, uh, you know, traditional sense, I'm very excited to eat a bunch of hot dogs. (laughs) It makes me want a hot dog real Real bad. bad. (laughs) You'll look like the 4th of July. Oh my gosh. A girlfriend of mine can do that voice like so good. It's crazy. But no, you're right. There's, there's, There's so many good memories that we have, especially associated with the 4th. Because another TikTok trend that I really love is, you know, living in the South didn't fuck me up that bad. Gianna? But it's like me blowing up shit in our backyard because we live in an area where we can shoot off fireworks. Gianna, will you please make that TikTok for us on the 4th of July? Gianna, I am in physical pain that I'm not home for the 4th and I cannot blow up a bunch of fireworks. Well, It is truly... I saw someone blow up a kryptonite in Washington Square Park the other day mm. and I I had a, a visceral reaction I was so excited to see someone shooting off fireworks and also those TikToks I wheeze every time I listen to that fucking banjo playing you know I don't really know what my fourth is going to look like this year because I am actually working on the fourth of <gasps> July I don't have that holiday off no yeah, that museum life, oh they'd be open on... Why? Because they only prioritize certain um, holidays, which is kind of funny. You would think that maybe the 4th would be one of like the big ones, but we're open, so I'd be working. My gosh, are neither of us going to get to shoot off fireworks? Maybe not. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I can live in a world where neither of the Fink... Think sisters. Well, we got to get Adrian. Adrian needs to shoot off some fireworks for us. With I feel as though normally we buy them discounted the next day, so I'll be able to like go back home and just shoot some off, like maybe yeah. the next weekend. But I also love shooting them off for my birthday. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like we get three di- three times we get to do it: birthday, mm-hmm. fourth, and then the discount sale. <laughs> yeah, that's really why Bianca likes the fourth. It's just a week to celebrate her. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty nice. (laughs) You know, 
But well, I am I am excited to get into July. July is definitely my favorite month. I'm just I'm really looking forward to it. Speaking of July, July is going to be a very busy month for us. And honestly, June has been a very busy month for us with so many amazing special guests, including today's episode. But before we get into our interview for today, we want to remind our listeners that we are going to take the month of July off, meaning that Bianca and I are taking our hot girl summer to work on a ton of things behind the scenes, new collaborations and some content to bring to the art pop tarts. Uh, With all of this in mind, though, we will still be active on social media and especially in the art pop tart Facebook group to keep in touch with you all. And we want to highlight some of our favorite episodes. If you haven't had a chance to listen to them yet, or you want to re-listen to some of the episodes whilst on your hot girl summer or, you know, by the pool, at the gym, because you know that's a big and high honor we like to receive is when you listen to us at the gym. Yeah, truly. (laughs) But I don't know about you, Bianca, but some of my recent favorite episodes would have to be the one from last week, Show Me the Money with Onyx Montez. That is very high up on my list. That is such an excellent episode. I love the engagement that we had with that one via social media as well. Bathrooms or bathroods, mostly because I'm really proud of myself for that pun, but that was a fantastic (laughs) episode. And then I would also have to say uh, canceled separating the art from the artist with Anna Blake. That was such a good conversation. So those would be uh, my top three. If you all haven't listened to those episodes or you need to do a little um, homework while you're, you know, have some time on your hands this summer. That's what I would. That's what I would recommend. Those are my hot takes. Oh, yeah. I would say that canceling Coco Chanel that's a great one. Welcome to Chromatica. Um, there you will get a very good sense of why Gianna and I love Gaga so much and why Gaga is you know important to APT overall. And I was thinking, you know, if you are new and you want to learn a little bit more about Gianna and mine's work, we've had some questions in our TikTok comments about kind of what our research is on. Then I would say the What's Funny About Eating Pussy episode is great. And there I talk about some ornamental theory that I worked on. And then The End of an Era, a look at Gianna's BFA program, is also a really good one to get into um, Gianna's work as an artist as well. I noticed that our very first episode is uh, climbing in our stats. No. And I don't want it. I want it off. I really I know. I'm so tempted to just delete it. And the only reason why we haven't is I I want the proof to show that we're 50-something episodes in and the trajectory and the progress is Is good. It's there. It's good to track. But... There's just no point. I don't know. No, so I get kind of nervous. So I just wanted to say that if you have listened to the first episode or you're thinking about going to the first episode, just, don't. you know, <laughs> well, well, don't or, you know, use some of the other episodes I mentioned to get to know us a little bit better. <laughs> but just if you if you do listen to it, you know, don't don't be scared of the audio. It's it's not our best work. We were very brand spanking new to how to put a podcast together. And so I'll just say, I, I actually went back and I was listening to it this morning. So I was I like, can't. We, yeah, I <laughs> can't listen to it. I, so, but it is so amazing, John. I mean, like, honestly, the, the difference is so incredible. It's just so funny. But I just wanted to say that if you or your friends have listened to the first one and they were like, man, that wasn't so hot, then please, please, for goodness sake, recommend a newer episode to well even like five episodes in it's just the audio got a lot better editing flow got a lot better (laughs) everything got better there were only positives moving forward only up we're only moving up it's like watching the pilot of a tv show like you're not super sure how you feel about it but you just got to give it one more chance and i would say that we are not the exception agreed oh that's a that's maybe we should title it pilot (laughs) maybe i should change (laughs) the title (laughs) Instead of welcome to Art Pop Talk, it's just pilot. Pilot, beware. yeah. Beware. <laughs> Alert. 
All of that being said, I'm going to miss you guys so much over the month of July, but Gianna and I are seriously working hard on a lot of things. APT is growing so much and so quickly, and we're really excited, but we got we to gotta get a grasp on all the things that we want to do for you guys. But that in mind, definitely make sure you're following us on social media, at Art Pop Talk on Facebook and Instagram, at Art Pop underscore talk on Twitter. We are on TikTok. The TikTok engagement has been out of this world the past month. We love hearing from you guys on that app. Also, we have a newsletter. So what we're going to do for the month of July, since we won't be bringing you new episodes, go to our website, artpoptalk.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you a newsletter the very first week of July, and we're going to give you all of the episode recommendations that we want you to listen to. We're going to recommend what we're reading, what we're watching. Also, if you are an Apple Podcast listener, or even if you just happen to have Apple Podcasts on your device, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, write us a review if you want. That would help us out so much. I see that most of our listeners are listening on Apple Podcasts, so that would be fantastic if you could help us out and leave us a review. Last thing before we get into the interview, Gianna and I just wanted to give a shout out to an amazing art pop tart, Nicole. We got a lovely, lovely email from her and Gianna and I were just literally in tears. It was it was so sweet to hear from an art pop tart and we always want to hear from you guys and we just we appreciate it so much and we always want to return any favor of that we can do for you guys for for listening to our show. So, Nicole, thank you so much for for writing to us. It, it really meant a lot to us. And with that, Gianna, are we ready to get into a little bit about Jen? Yes, absolutely. We were so honored to have Jen come on the podcast. We're really excited for you all to listen to the interview, but I do have to tack on to Bianca's comment and just send a big, big thank you to Nicole because that's just another little carrot dangled in front of us that keeps us going. Um, So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you all to Jen by reading her bio. Jen Johnson is an artist and printmaker from Oklahoma whose focus is queer and figurative abstraction. They obtained their BFA in printmaking and a BA in art history from Oklahoma State University in 2018. Johnson has worked with various artists and community members throughout Oklahoma while working as a printmaker and graphic designer at the Prairie Arts Center in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and in Long Island, New York as an intern at Universal Limited Arts Editions. Their work has been shown in Cimarron National Works on Paper at the Gardner Gallery of Art in Stillwater and regional juried printmaking at the Arvada Art Center in Arvada, Colorado, and in New Editions, a printmaking exhibition at the Indianapolis Art Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. Currently, they are teaching and pursuing an MFA in printmaking at Indiana University. All right, everyone, enjoy this conversation with Jen Don't forget, let us know how you're doing over the month of July, and ah, we will talk to you guys in a month. Oh my goodness. We'll see you guys in August. We'll miss you. you. Love you guys. everybody and welcome back. We are here with the amazing Jen Johnson. Jen, would you mind introducing yourself and just give the listeners a little brief overview about your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hello everyone. Um, I am a printmaker and artist from Oklahoma. Um, I know Gianna and Bianca because we went to Oklahoma State together and uh, Gianna was fabulous enough to be in a printmaking class that I kind of helped teach so um, and I am currently a grad student and associate instructor at Indiana University in Bloomington Indiana so kind of fled Oklahoma after I graduated undergrad to go to grad school Um, for most of my art career I've worked with the nude figure um, and I've explored 
um, various concepts such as objectification of the body, abstraction of the body, um, and most critically uh, using the body as a printing matrix. And so for my non-printmaking folks, that basically means I ink up models and I print them directly using their body. Um, I worked for a few years in between grad school and undergrad as a uh, graphic designer and printmaker at the Prairie Art Center in Stillwater, Oklahoma, um, where I also taught a number of print workshops and led a few community projects, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, and most recently um, in grad school for my thesis work, I've been applying my interest of the nude figure with my own personal experience of uh, living as a gender fluid person um, and working toward representing the body outside of the gender binary. So that's me. Sweet. <laughs> I'm so excited that you're here today. And it's, it's even better for me because Gianna and I have talked about how as an art historian, like we're not really allowed to witness the printmaking process. And so Gianna will talk to me all about printmaking in her classes and, and like what she's making at the time. And it's like, I don't, I'm not really sure I understand completely what's, what's happening as she's talking to me about this work. So when you're, you're in art history classes, we talk a lot about prints and printmaking and your instructor is like, oh yes, you know, this, this famous print over here. And you're just like, yes, yes, print, that's a print. Okay. But we, we don't really get further than that. And then, you know, we we're constantly kind of talking about these famous, you know, artists and, and how amazing and diverse the medium is, but we don't in art history actually know what that medium really is. So can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about the history of printmaking and kind of demystify it a little for us non printmakers? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I would say that like, 60% of my life is explaining printmaking to people because when you introduce yourself as a printmaker, um, when you tell somebody, I'm an artist, and they go, oh, what do you do? And you're like, I'm a printmaker. They're just like, what is that? Um, so yeah, when, when we talk about the history of printmaking and, and the way it's taught in our history classes, as Bianca said, it's very disconnected from the process. You usually don't get a lot of explanation of all the labor that goes into it all the time and how the matrices are actually created and how that is actually a distinction on how printmaking is categorized. Um, so it might be helpful for the other non-printmaking people out in the universe listening in um, to kind of break down printmaking as a field. So firstly, printmaking is an umbrella term, right? And it can be thought about as essentially just a way by which an artist or a tradesman or artisan creates a matrix that we can then replicate the same image from over and over and over again. Um, not so dissimilar from a copy machine, I kind of cringe to say, but um, that is essentially a concept. You're taking the same image and you're replicating it. And this is beneficial in a, a lot of ways. Um, for a commercial aspect, but also as an artist, it's very alluring because you get more bang for your buck. You spend all that time and labor making an image and you can get a thousand of them if you want to put the time into that. Um, but basically there's four major categories of printmaking. There's relief or block printing. There's intaglio or etching or engraving as it's also called. Lithography and screen print or silkscreen um, or stereography as it's kind of novelly termed. Um, and those three processes are distinct based on how the matrix is made, basically. So in relief, um, which is basically just woodcut or lino cut um, or wood engraving, you're actually removing areas to then print the surface. So you roll ink on what's left after carving, and then that is what's printed from. And you can either hand print that, or there's been like a series of specialized presses made throughout history um, to make that process a lot more efficient um, and consistent. Um, and from metal engraving processes um, came intaglio, which intaglio is the Italian word for to cut. And basically it's the opposite of relief. So instead of printing the areas that are left over after carving, you're actually printing what's been carved away. So you traditionally use copper 
And you would either do that by hand by using uh, wood engraving tools or metal engraving tools to physically remove sections of the copper where it would then hold ink and print, or you would introduce it to ferric acid and have the acid do it for you. And that would be called an etching. This is the etching process. Um, and so intaglio and relief are kind of mirrors of each other. And they both require pressure for printing and uh, often intaglio, um, or not often, pretty much no matter what, intaglio requires the pressure from a printing press. Um, lithography is kind of the most bizarre thing on earth in the best way possible. <laughs> it was essentially discovered by accident a Bavarian um, theater like playwright figured out that the specific composite of limestone from a quarry in Bavaria was able to hold the uh, greasy drawing material and be able to activate to take ink. So he was able to print his sheet music and theater notes from the stone, which like, is insanely mad scientist wild stuff, right? But basically it just works off of oil and water don't like each other. So the oily grease gets printed and the water washes away wherever the ink isn't supposed to be. And the great thing about lithography, this is around the 1700s, this was discovered, um, is that it's direct. So whatever you draw, as long as it's processed properly can be exactly replicated. So it was a great, great, commercial discovery because it also was really flexible in the use of color but it was also great for artists because they no longer had to lose anything through translation of the other processes um, and then screen print is basically printing a giant stencil right a giant mesh stencil um, instanting silk screen was originally in China where silk was used and really became popularized in Europe once silk was accessible from China. And that is the one that most people know because uh, honestly, because of Andy Warhol, thank you very much. Um, and, <laughs> and also because that's how you print t-shirts, right? And that's you know usually like a, a bridge uh, connection that I use for people when they're like, what the hell is printmaking? And I'm like, well, you know, printing t-shirts, like screen printing. And they're like, oh, right, that's what it is. And I'm like, yeah, that's like a quarter of what I do. But exactly. So a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of printmaking in the history of printmaking isn't so linear and um, isolated. It's really kind of developed organically based on the need of the area and like what kind of commercial or creative demands um were needing to be utilized in that space and you know as it developed throughout the 20th century inter like photography became you know very popular and started getting introduced into into printmaking so it, that opened even more commercial opportunities and even more artistic opportunities so it's always had this dual kind of placement in the commercial and fine art sphere and the emphasis that's been placed kind of shifting one to the other, just depending on the history and the cultural group. I just, I love that the most accessible point for people when talking about printmaking is like the capitalistic sector of printmaking. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That's that's my favorite thing about Andy Warhol is just like, he's such a shit, you know, like just... <laughs> Just selling all of these prints and popularizing this medium and then being like, fuck capitalism, you know? I know, <laughs> I know. Actually, yeah, I'm going to just use it to my advantage and I'm get just away gonna with it. I'm just going to make more money. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's so like, funny. I cringe, but then I'm also like, ah, whatever. At least they get the reference when people are like, oh, like Andy Warhol. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. guess. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> that is so funny because even kind of with those three uh, kind of formal definitions or like really profoundly like use examples of printmaking, there's also like collagraph print, there's also monotype. Oh. And why I think we're so excited to also have you on today is because you merge a lot of those printing techniques together. And so often our brains can register what like a relief print is if it's just that one process. But then when you start to combining them, it's just like, 
it's just mixed media. Like, let's just say it's mixed media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So let, let's get into that a little bit and, and talk okay. more about that mysticism. So um, like Gian was saying, you really push the possibilities of, you know, merging these traditional and very technological processes and techniques through this layered process. So can you share how you actually first developed this hybridity and how it became essential in representing bodies? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a it's kind of a combination of me being stubborn and frustrated and then also curious to learn lots of things at the same time. <laughs> um but when I so when I first started my BFA, I was actually a drawing major. Um, I don't know if you knew that Gianna, but I had no idea what printmaking was when I started at I, OSU. I think I did know that. I mean, you are forever in my brain as like my printmaking queen that told me what to do in, in life and I will forever <laughs> listen to you. Um, but drawing was also kind of a weird class in our program because drawing was essentially a great area to go into if you're really interested in doing a lot of mixed media stuff. But yeah if you didn't go down that path, like that honestly wasn't really, I wasn't super aware of that till I had already surpassed that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I got into printmaking before I hit that part of drawing. So while I was still a drawing major, I was doing like drawing one and two and like Mm -hmm. the figure drawing classes. And we're talking like very honestly boring still life drawings um where you're very tediously shading and using charcoal and graphite and all that fun stuff but I I loved I loved drawing and I always have loved drawing and I think I loved drawing because I was really bad at it I was really bad at it when I started art school I was really mad about it here's the frustrated part of me being stubborn um and but once I got the knack of it I was like dang this is really uh, rewarding but I felt really limited by like what I was getting to do during the process because it's just it's so tedious in like a very like unchanging way like it's the same thing over and over if you're doing like traditional drawing but once I took a printmaking class um with the fabulously insane Mark Sisson I immediately switched I was like halfway through my first semester of print and I was like, I think I really like this. And Mark was like, yeah, I think you should major in this. And I was like, great. I'm glad we're on the same page. And even with printmaking in the beginning, I was doing it very traditionally. That's how Mark taught it. Um, And I still felt limited. I still felt like I was sacrificing what some of the imagery I wanted to maintain. I was losing too much through the translation of the process. Um, And I wasn't using any photographic or digital elements of this uh, juncture. I was doing just like straight traditional drawn or hand carved imagery. And I was pretty, again, frustrated. And once I started getting into digital processes, it was around the same time I started thinking, well, if I'm trying to capture the exactness of the human body, like the surface, why don't I just print it, right? And that was actually Angie Peel's kind of like, a can of worms that she helped open but she was like well why don't you just print people and I was like what you can't do that and she's like why <laughs> and I'm like well okay yeah fair why not and so I tried it out and it worked great and I was like oh no this is exactly what I've been looking for and so I started printing people I started taking non-toxic printing ink inking models just covering them covering these poor models in ink and using like baby whites to like clean them up while they were in the studio like it was just ridiculous but it was really great and the impressions were amazing and it was like fantastic because it struck me as like almost an autographic or autobiographic abstraction of the body so and particularly those negative spaces where the body as it contorted based on how it was posed and everything it left like a negative space like so there was like parts where the body was able to print. So I would ink the model, put them on the floor on mylar or plexiglass and actually press them to simulate the printing pressure. And when that body contorted under the strains of the pose and the pressure, it would leave a very specific abstracted impression that was unique to that model and unique to that pose. And it left parts where it didn't print that you knew the body was there, but it was absent. 
And as I started going along and started learning more digital processes and getting into Photoshop, I realized that I could integrate a photographic element to it. And I found that interesting because photography and that moment struck me as what people assumed was the most direct impression of the figure, but it's actually less direct than the more abstracted printed images that I was making. And I found that dichotomy interesting, that expectation of like how a body surface looks when it's recorded directly or as directly as you think it's going to be with photography versus the actual direct recorded impression of a person. And so I started combining that and that required that I learn how to combine these uh, digital processes in Photoshop with hand-drawn applications of traditional printmaking with also this hybridized printed surface from a human body. Um, and so that became important because for me that showed that um, it created this full kind of complete commentary of all the different visual impressions that were possible of the body itself. Um, I can also attest to your process just a little bit because we did a model (laughs) trade my senior year. So you were kind enough to let me cast your body. And then in a way, in a printmaking sort of way, I would equate inking up a body and like making me the block, like also kind of like a casted process. Um, and I never thought anything could be messier than like plaster body casts, but you know, you, you totally (laughs) topped it off, but it was so, it was interesting to me, the kind of impression part and how like you would even like push down on some parts of my body or like my hips to even just try to get a little bit more of like an imprint in this Mm -hmm. spot. But then like, because I'm, you know, I'm so hyper aware of my own body and like, I know, you know, what it looks like in this hyper realistic sense. Then when I was able to step back and look at it, like, it's weird, as you said, because it is very abstracted and it is this almost negative-ish in imprint. But it's like, mm-hmm. wow, like I can really tell that, like, like those are my boobs or like those are my hips and like those are my shoulders. And like I, I was just really hyper aware with it in a really like surreal way. So it was really cool for me to witness because for a while there, I was just like, how is Jen making these images? Like. I, I just need to know. And the only way I'm going to find out is if I model for her. And it was a good experience. Um, and Jen, did you hear the story of my boyfriend commenting on your piece of Gianna? Oh, <laughs> in like, it. <laughs> I, was, I was scrolling through Instagram and it was like earlier on when we kind of first started dating and he saw your piece. He was like, oh my God, that's so cool. What is that? And I was like, I mean, my sister naked. <laughs> like, Oops. Oops. It was so funny, but I was like, no, no, no. Like, this is Jen. She's amazing. But also, like, let's look at some different ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not adorn so much compliment to this specific image uh, guy. Um, yeah, and the, the nice thing about that direct and direct was I was really concerned about um, at that time, especially because printing bodies is so invasive. It's super invasive. Like, and Gianni, you probably remember I had a whole conversation with you before and I'm like, this is what is going to happen. And like, this yeah. is what the ink is made from. And this is where I'm going to be touching you. And like, is there any part I can't absolutely touch you? And, you know, do you have mm-hmm. any like joint or health issues that makes distorting hard? Like, there's this whole like unpacking you have to do when you work with new models. And a lot of the models I worked with and used their photographs, like they were very uncomfortable with their body. Like they were not professional nude models. And so the nice part about this indirect direct abstraction was that I was able to kind of, as you're pointing out, Bianca, kind of mask the identity of the model who was working so that um, they weren't sort of burdened with this reality that they were being so exposed and their nude form mm-hmm. was being just launched out into the world in such kind of a raw, vulnerable way. Because um, working with nude models, like you do have to be, or you should be, I should say, not everybody is, but you should be considerate about how much of the privacy needs to be maintained mm-hmm. for the model's sake. So that's my little yeah. plug about art etiquette. 
Well, I remember while we were doing the process too, just with our modeling trade, we had a really interesting conversation because part of your uh, process in wanting to be respectful and protect that identity aspect of your models was that you didn't want to print that kind of external reproductive anatomy. Whereas the yeah. piece that I casted you in was specifically your external reproductive anatomy. And so we were having really interesting conference conversations about, um, you know, the differences in how we were portraying the body, because even though my work wasn't self-portraiture I was highlighting a very specific part of the body so that was I think a really cool moment like for us yeah yeah I agree and also practicality's sake who wants to wash ink out of their vagina let's be honest nobody wants to do that (laughs) in my opinion nobody wants that it's like a massacre in your bathroom afterwards I was like black ink everywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly So we do want to get into it a little bit more and kind of with this conversation in mind, we had previously highlighted a discussion that you and I had back in September where you had reached this pivotal shift in your practice trying to deconstruct gender by now visually showing the body. And specifically, you were asking yourself these questions, how can we fairly depict non-binary people without the viewer making their own assumptions about their gender identity based on how their body or anatomy looks. So this is such a great follow-up to that question. How are you tackling this concept now, almost kind of a year later? Yeah. Um, And this was uh, something I had to tackle early on, because as you pointed out, Gianna, like when I was, even when I was doing my work in undergrad I'm I I was subconsciously like leaning toward this like non-binary representation um I just didn't have the terminology at the time to sort of explain this what was going on you know as you said like I was intentionally avoiding printing gender areas or like really leaning into the person's gender identity that I was using um and it is very challenging I have learned to get a viewer to just not gender a figure. And for so many of the non-binary artists I've researched and looked at, they're um, basically working around that issue just by not using the figure directly at all. And um, for very good reason, it, it's very, very charged imagery and it comes with a lot of baggage and expectations. And, you know, um, as I know you're both aware, there's a lot of feminist theory written about that and queer theory written about those issues of agency and objectification and all that fun theory stuff. But um, when I was thinking about how I want to tackle non-binary, I had to basically contend with two facts, which was um, I can only speak about my own personal experience and my personal relationship with my body. I don't have the authority or the right to speak on the behalf of anybody else that's non-binary because everybody's queer experience and their relationship with their body is unique. Um, So I think like that is something I'd like to emphasize that when I talk about my work, I am talking from a position of my own experience, which is a um, gender fluid specific, white specific, um, coming from a rule or background specific, uh, dealing with being queer from a red state specific kind of experience. So I started using self-portraiture, right? So like that was just kind of the easiest way to sort of um, take ownership of that fact. It's like, well, if I'm going to use my experience, I need to use myself was basically the logical course. Um, and it also just kind of made practical sense because when people would be like, well, what does non-binary look like? And I'm like, well, it looks like me ta-da, like, that's it, Um, and because I am non-binary, so, like, there you go, but, you know, it's not that simple. Um, People often, society viewers often won't just be like, oh, of course, yes, like, no arguments, no assertions, Um, and I realized the more I read about um, queer theory and non-binary and read about how people talk about non-binary, there was a lot of discussion about it was a lack of something, right? It was a lack of masculinity, a lack of femininity, a lack of a binary, a lack of um, a lot of things. And there's an emphasis on what it wasn't. 
And I found that discourse to be interesting because it often frames it in a way that I thought, well, this just sounds like a lot of what it isn't and not giving a lot of substance to what it is. And so, and then at the same time, I've read a lot about how there's a lot of discord about how now binary is becoming a third gender in a way. Like there's these assumptions of being non-binary being placed now, these expectations of androgyny that non-binary is supposed to look a certain way. So it's this weird um, contradiction of it's a lot of things that isn't, but it's also being subscribed a lot of parameters of what it should look like. And it's um, honestly very confusing and frustrating. <laughs> like it's, it's a bizarre thing because you are always, at least for me, I always felt like I was stuck in a position of like, am I not queer enough? Am I not androgynous enough? Like, do I have to have top surgery for people to stop gendering me? Like, do I have to like shave my head? Like, what do I need to do? And so what I started doing visually is trying to like talk about that dichotomy between basically a positive and a negative. So the lack of something and then also the presence of something. And I do this by like basically putting as much emphasis on the use of negative space as I do positive space on a work. And I've been reading a lot about the Japanese concept of ma, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, but essentially it's a quote that's often used to describe it as an emptiness full of possibilities, like a promise yet to be fulfilled. And that's kind of how I think about the use of negative space in my work is I'm trying to basically show that it's not a lack as in an emptiness, but the absence of is just as full as the positive space, right? Um, and I do this by like abstracting the body, editing the body, um, removing areas of myself um, and also combining it with this, my printed skin, which also has those negative spaces, right? I talked about how when you print, it's always interesting because parts of the bodies can't be printed because other parts are in the way, but you still register that there's a body there. Like even in that negative space, it feels like there's context, that there's imagery. You still read it as both empty and full and occupied. Um, so I combine the printed skin, the edited photos and utilize that negative space to try to represent the body in this space that's in between negative space and positive space where it's both a hybrid of both a lack of but also a fullness and the positive space that i use is the imagery that is readably um a human right like it's more registered as a as a human figure and with that i obscure it so i do multiple images of myself and layer it and, and literally obscure my body with myself to make it less accessible and less readable so that the gendering uh, knee-jerk reaction is harder to get to. Um, and this is all a work in progress. It's a lot of theoretical rambling happening on my end, I'm aware. But that's basically what I've been getting into is like trying to show that even though non-binary is often thought of just as not having kind of anything, like existing totally outside of something, um, that doesn't mean that it's empty or lacking. There's still a fullness and a richness of that identity and of that experience that just unfortunately hasn't been granted space to exist in like fullness visually in the way that it should be. Yeah. If that, that registers. It does definitely. It's fascinating listening to you talk about that research aspect and in, in telling us what non-binary isn't. As silly as this sounds, and I know Bianca and I use a lot of silly pop culture examples, but I think they can be tangible talking points and entering points into larger conversations like this. Um, mm -hmm. There is this trend right now on TikTok that is about how like proof that clothing it doesn't have anything to do with how you represent yourself. It's really all about your expressions and like your body language. And people go from... Yeah 
a very like feminine gesture and then be able to turn to like a very masculine gesture and it has nothing to do with the clothing that they wear on their bodies. So I think kind of destigmatizing the body and also stripping it away from things that are gender markers such as clothing is also an aspect in the way that you're accomplishing that. But I do think it's interesting because when I look at your work, it's just this pure emphasis on the body and I don't feel like there's that much not too much expression coming from the figure. It's just that exploration of like skin and, and body. Yeah. 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 And I, I use nude work because it is in a very strange way, unba- un- like unburdened because like, you know, clothing environment, all of these things that we adorn ourselves with are also so charged, right? As mm-hmm. you were saying, like clothing can be affected by the body but it can also define and confine the body and people can utilize it to their advantage or it can sort of be constrictive and when you strip away everything that usually the body is adorned with to have those signifiers you're kind of left with the reality of just the exterior of the body itself and then you sort of get pressed to you get more easily pressed well like why are you assigning gender to this? Because there's no true like social signifiers left. And now you're down to the clinical signifiers. And then now we're down to sex versus gender. And then now like, you know, it becomes more and more of the um, destabilization of the whole structure, the more you remove. Yeah. I think what I really do like about this work so much is that and Jen, you and I have talked about this so much. Like, viewers are going to make their own assumptions about the artwork or have their own feelings about it, like no matter what you do or like what your intent is. But when I think about the physicality of this work and its presence in something like a gallery space, it'll be interesting to, you know, especially once we can be out in the world again and this work is shown, to be able to collect that data for you and how people are feeling about the work maybe even before they read what that purpose is, before they get into the statement of it all. And it'll be interesting for you to to be able to document that viewer experience. Um, but kind of going off of that, because again, we are talking about this body and people are going to think about bodies however they think about them. Oh, yeah. um, you oh, yeah. had just mentioned that so many artists, even queer artists, tackling non-binary issues or concepts are not using the body because it is so complex and they want their viewpoint to be so concrete and so clear. So I'm curious if you have found any new affinity artists since we last spoke that have helped you with this concentration. I know that we had talked about and I had shown some other sculpture works of um some contemporary artists that were critiquing that word hermaphrodite that we see in like classic mm. sculptures. And so that was a little yep. thing that we had talked about, but I didn't know if there was any more. Yeah. And um, also just to clarify, like there are a lot of like trans artists that are dealing with the body. Um, mm-hmm. There's obviously a whole history of like queer when we talk about queer in terms of sexuality um, that deal with the body. Um, one of my biggest influences across the board is Robert Maplethorpe. Um, and the way he photographed the body um, was a huge inspiration on my work, especially early on. Um, but what I was, my specific like uh, myth in that moment talking to you was uh, trying to find like specifically non-binary artists who weren't working to reframe any part of the binary itself, you know, trying to totally degender the body. And that was where I was on the struggle um, because uh, so much of, and rightly so, like so much of it has um, been given attention to trans artists who are talking about um, a placement on the binary itself within their work and kind of decoding like the expectations of the body in that regard. Um, but uh, thanks to grad school and its wonderful resources and my wonderful professors here at IU, I've met a few people um, and found a few people that um, are doing fantastic things. Um, one of them is Matthew Willie Garcia, um, and he actually uh, does what he calls 4D printing, which I was like, what is that? <laughs> um, and essentially, it's printmaking 
plus installation plus video. So like creating an entire like printmaking mind blowing experience. Like it's pretty insane. Like laser Floyd with printmaking, man. Like it's really cool. Um, but, and he's using um, non-representational forms. Um, so he's not using the body directly in like very specific visual ways, but he's applying concepts from quantum mechanics, which he argues has queerness to it, um, to explore the fluid nature of queer identities. Um, and it's really, really great. And his color use is just like chef's kiss. Like this guy does like color blends of screen printing that just make me want to vomit. Like he's so good. Um, but his, just the nature of his work, like even though he's not directly using the body, and um, he is actually still like making commentary about queer identity and about kind of this existence of the fluidity of queerness that I found really um, vibed well with my concepts of trying to get outside of the binary visually. Um, and then I took a class last semester called Queering the Fibers Studio, which is really great. Um, we have like a whole fibers area here at IU, which I think is fantastic. And um, they have so much stuff that I don't know anything about. It's really great. But uh, we did an artist talk with um, this artist named Jade uh, Yumeng. And they um, are, they're fibers artists and they make these huge kind of complex and same fiber installations and sculptures. And they focus on the concept of creating queer forms and how the body resists or submits to materiality. And the thing that really struck me about their work was they were able to integrate a lot of commentary on queer history and experience and sort of this more like macro experience of what it was like to exist as queer, but also rooting it in like a personal narrative and personal experience. So that was really influential for me and kind of gave me some ideas on how I could kind of broaden out my work to make it accessible for an audience that maybe isn't non-binary, maybe isn't queer, and maybe doesn't have access to all of those experiences, but can still kind of get something from it. I want to kind of switch back to the idea of printmaking itself. And earlier we were kind of joking that people understand it as this very like capitalistic tool, but what's also very cool about printmaking is that it is used as a media for social change. So going off of what you were just talking about with these artists, can you talk about how queer artists have historically used printmaking and printed media in the past and how the media may lend itself to a type of social equality for artists or or feeding into that line of it being a, a social tool for contemporary use as well? Yeah, so the great thing about, well, there's lots of great things about printmaking, but to this point, um, the great thing about printmaking is it has this great capacity to bring people together, okay, because it's very labor intensive, it's very technical, and it's so much easier to do if you have people to help you do it, but it's also fantastic because it can be sort of boiled down to be very DIY friendly. And so at any point in history that any marginalized group has needed to come together, communicate either covertly or overtly, kind of rally the troops as it were, and protest or just be heard or find each other, they've probably utilized printmaking in some capacity. Um, and that's absolutely true for queer people and queer history. And that's been true for activist groups like ACT UP. That was true during the AIDS epidemic. Um, and so many people were needing to inform each other because the government wasn't doing it for them. And that's true for even social collectives like Queer Corps in California, um, where they utilized printed zines and photocopies and kind of what would be considered crude DIY approaches to create this whole uh, this whole culture of queer people that were invested in activism and punk rock and things like that. So um, 
it's been utilized by activists, social collectives, and there's also a number, uh, particularly now, of print shops that specialize to queer communities. So they hold workshops where they utilize printmaking processes as a leaping off point to discuss queer history and bring together queer people, particularly young queer people, who might be new to their identity and sort of working to figure each other themselves out and looking for people to sort of feel a sense of belonging. Um, they utilize printmaking and that capacity of socialization, of community printing, of bringing people together. And they educate them about their history or they just get them involved or they have them be introduced to some queer elders. Um, and so printmaking specifically in queer history, it's a little bit harder to narrow down on like specific examples because just pick an activist group, they use screen printing, right? Like they made posters. I guarantee you they made posters and um, or they made zines or they made t-shirts like and of course as you're aware at Pride there's printmaking everywhere because everybody's got to have a t-shirt or button or zine or whatever like everybody's got to have some merch right um, but it's been it has such a great use to just be as simply a hobby that people use to spread their merch that you know, so people can know about them, their selves as an artist or their brand or their group. It can be used much more politically for activist causes, and it can be used to bring people together and create a safe space that can focus on not just breaking down social barriers, but breaking down racial, queer, all, all types of barriers and just bring people together under the activity of printing. I think that you have already really answered this question. Um, I think so many of us that are interested in social justice or social issues um, and the people that I've been lucky enough to share studio studio space with are using this tool and this method to their advantage. But how do you see your work play into this history and this lineage of printmaking? Um, And I also think that for so many people, you know, printmaking has these preconceived notions about it, that it is this less valuable or lower form of art because it is duplicated and replicated in these certain types of ways. And so I guess if you had some quick notes that you'd like to share with others about your work and the medium and and moving forward. Yeah. um, And you're absolutely right. Most people, artists, love us to death, but there's some artists outside of printmaking that don't think highly of printmaking um, because there's not. But, you know, there's just been a long history of printmaking being a trade, okay? So because of the allure of the multiple, it's obviously had great commercial success. And there's was a whole print industry, like newspapers were printed still in some smaller areas like with type right like there's still print shops like there's still commercial printmaking happening right now um and because of its multiple as you said because of its assignment as a trade um and not like a fine art discipline um it has been for a lot of its history kind of being considered like the redheaded stepchild of the art world. And, you know, I, I just absolutely disagree with that because I think that, well, you probably guessed from the snob comment, I think it's a very elitist position to assume that just because you can create a multiple in addition of something that somehow like having the multiple, uh, forms of the same image means that it's somehow valueless. Like that is, that's some capitalist BS. Well, for you me, know? It, but, just, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense, right? Because so much of our multiples that we see for sculpture, you know, a public work of art, like that is more highly revered or or bought more at a yeah. higher rate, even though we yeah. still are gonna have 
those original molds for them in those casts. But because print is replicated and used for other forms of like protest and in public forms of consumption yeah. on this lower other end, even though it's like the same thing, same thing can be said for photography as well. Oh yeah. And you know, let's not get into photography territory that can get dangerous. Um, but yeah, and some of that has to do with the fact that, like, with sculpture, the materials are just kind of considered more valuable. Like, printmaking is often printed on paper, and it was printed in a manner that was meant to be disposable, like, things like newspapers and things like that. So it's a harder thing to kind of navigate, but I embrace it because I, for me personally, like, printmaking is so egalitarian and it's so flexible and it's so welcoming that I find that as a queer person I have a lot more flexibility and I don't feel so confined by like such an intense hierarchy elitist history of art like I think about oil painting and I'm just like oof how the hell do I fit into oil painting like how do I fit into such an kind of a heavy history of such high expectations such high marks and high bars and like all these expectations that go with that medium and I'm just like I'm so good I uh I will happily stay a humble printmaker if that's what that means and I also love that as a queer person it affords me the ability to spread out further like to get my work out there to make it more accessible to people because as somebody who's very passionate about queer history and creating safe spaces for queer people because I was so devoided of that um, when I was younger and uh, when I first came out as queer. Um, it's very kind of important to me that at the very least my work can give some kind of uh, relief or security to a queer person in the room that might be in a museum or might be in a gallery that maybe they're not sure they're welcomed or supposed to be there. And with printmaking I can have that branched out much further and you know it's just also great as you said from a capitalist standpoint because I get more work out and you can sell more work right you can make you can if you want to go the uh, Jeff Coons route you can make more money so you know where does my work in the lineage of printmaking words that fall I don't know but I know that like I'm supposed to be a printmaker and my work is supposed to be print because that's what I think at my core, maybe it's because I'm queer or maybe there's just something queer about printmaking, but it's definitely what I'm supposed to be doing. I love I it. Love I love it so much. I love everything. About <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start using that phrase if you're going to go the Jeff Koons route. <laughs> <laughs> so well, we've uh, like trash talked to... Jeff Koons and Andy Warhol, oh, so always. we're doing good you're gonna so go far. The the Jeff Koons route we might as well make everything gay like throw me a freaking bone <laughs> just, if you're gonna make give money, me one of those blow up Koons. you know <laughs> a yeah. blow up dog and a bone come on you know yeah um so we like to end our interviews with a very fun pop question so um this is our last episode for the month of June and we started the month with an episode on our favorite thing you know performative pride in art museums so oh, our right. question for you <laughs> is over the course of the month did you make a pride-based purchase of any sort or take part in any guilt-free rainbow washing <laughs> yeah I read this question and I read guilt-free rainbow washing and I died I was like oh no we're not we're not um, trying to make anyone feel guilty but you know sometimes oh, no. it happens no, rainbow capitalism is such a pain because, like, it's funny you say guilt-free rainbow washing, and immediately my brain was like, I don't have any guilt. I'm gay. Like, I can buy whatever <laughs> I want and do it for me. Um, this is true. <laughs> in a very, like, you know, uh, sassy kind of way. But, um, yeah, I, I bought, um, I, I brought, like, a, like a rainbow... Uh, button-up shirt from uh, Mod Cloth. Um, but I have been relishing and TikTok trashing the Rainbow Capitalist lines at like Target and Walmart. And Rainbow Capitalism is hilarious to me because um, 
I often wonder who it's for. Like I saw a mug at Target that said uh, "Cheers Queers." I was like, "Who? <laughs> Who's buying?" You're just having your morning place? coffee, like yeah, the, just casually, like the latest. <laughs> the latest thing that I was cracking up about was I went into a TJ Maxx and they had these little tea towels that were like love is love like I'm an ally and I'm like who's Karen is this for like and it was right next to like the Ray Dunn like section and then oh, it, was, God. Like, it was amazing unfortunate product placement um unfortunate. yeah the love the love is love uh phrase I'm just like I get the intent but it just seems like redundant as redundant I don't know I was it's just it strikes me as a very odd phrase but um the pronoun merch cracks me up too because they like fill a whole like pantsuit with pronouns and I'm like okay but like is this really applicable to anybody who doesn't use all the pronouns like right like what are your pronouns like yeah you to, like circle which ones which yeah. ones you're using or like <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very confusing, but as annoying, and I will just say about rainbow capitalism, as annoying and as awful as it is, and as much as the queer person I hate that capitalism is trying to exploit all of my shit, and I don't like it, but I will say, if you told me when I was 13 or 14 when I first came out, and I was living in rural Oklahoma, that I would be able to one day in my lifetime walk into a Walmart and see Pride merch, I would have called you like a lunatic. I would have called you a liar. Um, so there is something like very like spitefully satisfying to me about being able to go to Walmart and next to like all the like camo hunting redneck gear <laughs> is like just a swath of rainbow pride merch. <laughs> and I don't know. So guilt-free rainbow washing. I don't know, but I do like, seeing pride merge at Walmart in a kind of, I don't know, satisfying revenge kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> if you're going to get your revenge on, do it with a rainbow. Um, we uh, want to know where everybody can find you. Where can they keep up? They want to follow your work. Isn't uh, And is there anything that you want to share or plug before we let you go? Uh, yeah, you can... Uh... Find me mainly on Instagram um, at Jen Johns Art. Um, I have a website, uh, jenjohnson.myportfolio.com, where you can see uh, most of my undergrad work. Um, I'm in the process of changing websites, so just stay tuned. And um, as far as the plug, um, I don't know, but hopefully everybody is enjoying Pride. Make sure to donate to your local LGBTQIA groups, get involved be active, be happy. And as always, don't be a jerk and love each other. And happy Pride, guys. What a great way to end the month of June. All right. Well, we, as always, will link all of Jen's materials for you right in our show notes. Definitely check check all of that out. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. And one last plug, of course, for the love of God, learn what printmaking is. Find a printmaker and love it. <laughs> I love it. All right, guys, we'll talk to you in a month. Bye, guys. Art Pop Talks executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.